You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pack podcast. This is episode 208 and today on the show we are joined by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Kelly is a world-leading health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. Kelly's previous books include The Joy of Movement, The Willpower Instinct and The Upside of Stress. Kelly's TED Talks combined have over 20 million views and she was called by Oprah magazine a visionary. In today's episode we discuss the effect that movement has on the body, we look at this all the way back to an evolutionary perspective, why we've evolved to feel so good after a run or a workout, we look at why exercise triggers what Kelly has called hope molecules, we discuss whether movement can end the epidemics of loneliness, anxiety and depression that are unfortunately so prominent in the world that we live in today. And we also examine how movement can be used as a tool for connection, not just to ourselves, but to the entire planet. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with the superb Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. So a lot of our audience will know you from the work in which you've done to willpower. And you did that enormous TED Talk, which has millions of views now on stress. So I finished The Joy of Movement, your latest work on Audible this morning. So I wonder, could we delve into what made you write the book that you call the book that you were born to write? Yes. Well, you know, so I was talking to someone this morning and he said that the way he thought about my books is that I'm always asking people to think differently about something they already have their mind made up about. And um, I kind of wanted to do the same thing with movement because so many people think about movement and exercise as like a punishment for enjoying life or eating or something you have to do to invest in your future health, but that really isn't any fun or pleasurable when you're doing it. Um, and so many people just associate movement and exercise with a chore or with, with shame or with dislike. And for me, you know, movement has always been one of the most important things that I've ever done to take care of my mental health. And that has been true since I first discovered aerobics when I was a little girl growing up in the 80s. Um, and so, you know, in terms of this being the, the book that I was born to write, I feel like it's because I am so passionate about what movement can do for people's emotional well-being and social well-being. And even though most people know me, as you said, as a, a psychologist, um, I also have been teaching group movement classes for 20 years, and I've always believed that the biggest difference that I make in terms of a contribution to the world are, you know, the morning dance classes that I teach to seniors or to, the, you know, the kickboxing or yoga classes that I teach to stressed out students at Stanford. I really believe that, that those experiences 
are doing as much good as anything else I could do as a psychologist. Um, so I was born to write this because this is something that has meant so much to me in my life. And I've seen firsthand how it can bring joy and strength to others. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> I find that fascinating. So how did a seminar called The Psychology <laughs> of Shyness impact your life? Yeah, can we first start with that word shyness? That was actually like shyness. a, it was meant to be, I think it was like meant to be an emotionally sensitive word for, you know, social anxiety or like overwhelming paralysis in the face of life. Um, so it was a seminar called the Psychology of Shyness. And it was offered at Stanford um, the summer after my first year of graduate school. And actually, I'd had a tough you know, first year as a PhD student, I was thinking about dropping out, because, first of all, because I was incredibly lonely, having picked up and moved across the country, uh, totally isolated from family and friends, just sort of struggled to feel like I belonged, struggled to, 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 to feel like I had a home. So I was thinking about dropping out, and there was this interesting class on the psychology of shyness. So I decided to take a bunch of classes that summer and regroup. And that class the main assignment for the entire quarter was to pick something that you had been putting off because of fear, because of anxiety of some sort, and then to go out and pursue it. And so what I decided to do was um, to audition to become a group fitness instructor at Stanford because group movement classes, whether um, you know dance or yoga or kickboxing, they had been like the one place at Stanford where I, I felt like I had a positive experience, where I connected with people, where I felt like my best self. And so I, I used that course to deal with like my overwhelming fear and anxiety of, of, of like, is this something I can do? I want to do it so much, but like the idea of doing it makes me, you know, my heart pounds and I'm overcome with self-doubt. And um, by the end of the summer, I had auditioned. I was hired and I began teaching, and that absolutely transformed my life for a couple of reasons. One, because it got me on the path to teaching, which is really how I found my home and found my community, but also because it taught me that, that I had the capacity to do things that scared me and that that feeling of being scared is sometimes a sign that I care. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know I had experienced that previously, but I felt like that was a moment where it was so clear to me that sometimes I would have to do things where, you know, my instinct was to run mm -hmm. and that I could choose to stay because I sensed how much it mattered to me and what an opportunity it was. And, um, you know, even like doing a TED talk, like you mentioned, similar kind of process. Although by that point in time, I wasn't terrified of public speaking. I was terrified of getting on an airplane to fly across an ocean, but still managed to apply the same principles of choosing meaning over trying to avoid fear. When you look at the, um, the navigation that your life has, has taken from nearly dropping out of Stanford to the point now, I mean, which everybody sees these amazing things in which you've done. Where do you think that you would be in life without exercise? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I would have had to find a coping mechanism. And I I think realistically, I, I probably would have turned to something that was self-destructive. Mm. I, I look at, um, in my own history, my family history, and my personality. And I think it's very likely I would have had to find something that um, helped me really suppress or avoid a lot of the difficult inner experiences that I've had in my life, which include not just anxiety, but also um, chronic pain. 
movement has really helped with that too. So, you know, I don't know where I would be professionally, but um, I, I have a sense that I would be suffering a great deal more um, and probably dealing with addictions or self-destructive behaviors because, you know, exercise, and there are, I should say, I'm a psychologist who supports a lot of different practices and therapies. I also research the benefits of meditation, for example, and, and volunteering. I mean, there, you know, being in nature, there's so many wonderful things you can do to support your mental health in addition to therapy and medication. So I know all of that, but for me, exercise is the thing that, um, what it, what it did was what it continues to do is it makes me braver, which is the kind of medicine that I need. And I actually think it's, it's hard to find therapies that make you braver rather than that just try to reduce your, your inner suffering enough to help you get on with things. And I feel like exercise does something different for me in that it gives me these such strong, positive emotions like joy and hope and a sense of, you know, myself as being fierce or powerful, um, and a way to connect with others in which I feel accepted and that I have something to contribute. Um, that, that has been such profound medicine for me that I, I, you know, I worry about what I would have turned to without that. It's interesting because what you just described there seems to me like it's one of those things where it's the moving from versus the moving to. So, you know, as you just said, I mean, you could have been um, perhaps battling addictions or self-destructive behaviors, which would be the, um, you know, moving away from type things where you constantly be in a fight with it. But with the exercise as the sort of the foundation and it opens up things to like courage, joy, uh, different perspectives, would that be a fair way to describe what it's done is sort of shifted you from fighting to opening up to like a world of possibilities? Yes. And I, I feel like that's actually an underlying theme of all of my work is how to encourage myself and other people to cultivate approach motivation rather than avoidance motivation. I love that. Uh, I, you know, I people have different temperaments. You know, people tend to be born either more of that like drive to go after what they want and seek out positive experiences. Or, you know, some people seem temperamentally um, built to be very sensitive to threat and vigilant and have strong skills for avoiding or hiding or withdrawing. And I'm that latter type. And it is, it's useful in some circumstances. But um, I, yes, I would say my journey in life has been to try to overcome severe avoidance tendencies and um, and all those emotions that you mentioned, things like joy and hope and courage. One of the reasons why I love them so much, I'm so fascinated by things that can give us access to them is because they are such powerful approach motivations. And so if you are somebody who deals with depression, grief, anxiety, addiction, all of them tend to be really strongly rooted in uh, the avoidance instinct. And so we need something that jumpstarts our brain chemistry, jumpstarts our sense of self, jumpstarts motivation in a way that pushes us back into life to, to go after things we want rather than just avoid what we don't want. When I was in university, one of the strategies which I developed was uh, from a Tony Robbins um, audio book that I remember listening to. And one of the things he used to say was, when you're struggling with something, then the first thing to do is don't even try to solve it. Just change your physical state and then mm. to change the story which you're telling yourself. So I had been doing that for years without thinking to myself, well, you know, why am I actually doing this? What are the benefits of it? All I just, all I knew was that it worked. So 
I suppose my question to this would be is, you know, why does our body reward ourselves so much for exercise? Oh, great. I'm so excited to talk about this. Sorry. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to finish. I could jump in with my enthusiasm. <laughs> um, let's talk about the biochemistry a little bit. Um, and then we can talk about maybe the, you know, the evolutionary theory behind it if you sure. want. But Love it. I think two things that people often um, find helpful to know. First is that there's something called the feel better effect, which is that if you have been inactive, you've been sitting, you've been lying down, you've just been like stuck in an inactive state and you move your body in any way that gets your blood flowing more, that gets your heart rate up a little bit, maybe you're breathing more fully, um, you almost always immediately feel more energy and a more positive outlook. That's called the feel better effect. And there is like no movement that doesn't count. There's no dose that's too small because as soon as you go from being inactive to active, your brain releases dopamine, your body releases adrenaline. And these are two chemicals whose primary effect are to give you more energy and to give you more positive motivation, uh, a sense of, of hope and desire to do stuff. So that's the feel better effect. And you can access that anytime, you know, stand up, go for a walk, climb some stairs, dance to a single song in your living room, do a few yoga poses, right? It all works. And so that advice, if you're feeling stuck to change your physical state, that right there is harnessing the feel better effect. Um, and in part, like, why would that be? You know, the answer is really, really simple. Human beings are meant to engage with life through movement. There basically is no other way that human beings engage with life except through cognition, like just thinking. But basically everything we do, whether we are feeding ourselves, connecting with others, physical labor, getting ourselves around, even the fact that we are communicating right now, we're using muscles to do that. Um, so movement is how we engage with life. And when you become more active than you were, your brain basically rewards you by saying, oh, you're alive. You're gonna need some energy and some motivation to do this thing we call life. So that's just like the basic function. You move more, your brain and body know, great, we're alive, more energy, more motivation. But the thing that I spend most of the time writing about in the book is the exercise high, which is like the feel better effect on steroids. And this is what happens in your brain when you are continuously active you know, for at least 20 minutes at a moderate intensity uh, or more. But moderate intensity means, you know, basically your heart rate is, is uh, accelerated enough that you can feel it, but not so much that you like have to stop because you're completely out of breath and it's just, you know, all you can do to just pause and regroup. So you're just, you're moving, you're breathing, your heart rate is up, you're using your muscles. Do that for 20 minutes or more and your brain releases a whole bunch of, of neurochemicals, including dopamine, and you've got that adrenaline rush. But also now you have in play endocannabinoids, which uh, are brain chemicals that have two main functions. They tune down stuff in your brain that we would often describe as unpleasant, physical pain, anxiety, stress, anger, ruminative thoughts, so like those worries that you can't push down. Endocannabinoids, uh, basically, it, it's going to dial down all of that stuff, all of that inner suffering. And endocannabinoids also enhance pleasure and joy. So anything that feels good, anything that makes you feel good, uh, you know, a beautiful sunset, uh, a hug from a friend, the taste of delicious food, um, you know, imagining a positive future for yourself, anything that normally feels good to us when endocannabinoid levels are higher, they feel even better. So we are sensitized to joy and to pleasure. 
And this is the main brain chemical that exercise seems to increase in the short term. Um, and this is, you know, what is behind the runner's high, or you could just think of it as the exercise high, because you can get this effect from doing hiking and swimming and cycling and dancing and weightlifting. And, you know, we could go on and on. It's just about, about persistent engaging in physical effort. Um, and if you work even harder than that, you're going to get an increase in neurochemicals like endorphins and oxytocin. Or if you combine exercise with other things that you love, like a great playlist or people that you like, you're also going to get an extra boost in endorphins and oxytocin. And these are brain chemicals that just super enhance that, that feel good state. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say about this, this brain state, which seems to happen, you know, within 20 minutes of movement, it persists usually for hours. So there are studies showing that if you um, exercise in the morning, you are more resilient to stress the entire rest of the day. Like no matter what happens to you, the most stressful thing that happens to you, you're going to be able to take it better in stride. It's going to have less of a negative effect on your mood than if you hadn't exercised. But the thing that I wanted to say about these brain chemicals that is what blew my mind and made me think back to why, you know, maybe group movement classes were the only place I felt like I belonged when I was a struggling grad student is that those brain chemicals um, particularly make us better able to connect with others and experience social joy. So it feels better to talk to someone else, a stranger or a friend. Um, physical contact feels more rewarding, whether it's a high five or a hug. Um, making eye contact with other people feels more natural and less intimidating. Um, everything that is social feels better. Play, cooperation, love, it, it all just feels better when your endocannabinoid levels are high. And so exercise often tends to make us more social as well and better able to connect with both strangers and people we care about. So I'll pause for a moment. I talked, I'm, I told you I was enthusiastic <laughs> about this. I'm sorry. I love it. I love it. I think there's so many points in there, which I could pick up on. The one thing in which I would love to talk about is uh, the social aspect, because when I was going um, through your audiobook, the one thing in which I was thinking to myself was, uh, this concept of uh, the runner's high. And when I run, I would say that I uh, I definitely do get um, an uptake in my mood. I definitely feel better. But if I was to do a hierarchy of uh, in terms of how I feel, I would put that at the bottom for me. Then I would put weightlifting. But at the top of the pyramid is the Latin ballroom dance classes, which I go to every week. Now, when I come out of those, I feel um, just absolutely like, like I, I imagine that's probably what ecstasy feels like. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm smiling so big right now. I know you can't see this. You don't know how many runners I've talked to in promoting this book. I'm not a runner. I truly appreciate now the science and, and the passion that people have for running. But like you, for me, nothing is going to top an amazing, the collective joy of a dance class so keep talking yeah is, that's what i was gonna say is is it you know i was thinking i was trying to piece all this together in my mind i was like you know i was like why is that is it the is there there's an element of social risk there is it the the joy and the actual physical touch of someone else like why is there yeah well so many things could be at play there and one of the things i want to mention so i joked about me not being a runner i'm married to a runner and my identical twin sister is a super runner, super serious about it. Oh, wow. So I really do appreciate how amazing running is. Um, but one of the things that I've been trying to really persuade people is that, you know, human beings are 
different. And we all have like different. So there are certain natural capacities humans have for joy, but we're all wired to resonate with some of those joys more strongly than others. So it's like when you find your right, your right workout or your ideal activity, it's going to light up buttons inside your brain or in your heart, in your body where this is like the thing you were made for. It's the thing that makes you come alive. And it is not the same for everybody. So when you talk about something like Latin ballroom dancing, so many things are at play there. And one is music. And I don't know if you have, do you have live music or you're using recorded music? It's recorded, yeah. Yeah, so it could be either. But we know that some people have a, a particularly euphoric response to being in the presence of live musicians. And so that can be part of it. Mm. Um, but we but all humans have the capacity to respond to music with joy and particularly dance music tends to have a lot of emotions in it. And, you know, we know that when people listen to music, they enjoy or music that has a strong dance beat or music that has a lot of emotion in it, that it automatically increases dopamine and adrenaline, just like activity. And it also activates the, the motor loop of the brain that makes you want to move and helps facilitate movement with greater ease and confidence and skill and pleasure. In my um, in my book, I wrote about a dance class for people with Parkinson's disease that uh, takes place at Juilliard in New York City. And one of the reasons that that class is so powerful for participants is that the live music there allows them to move in ways that their brain literally doesn't permit because of how um, that brain disease impairs physical movement and also emotion expression. So that could be part of what you're experiencing is that that music is giving you access to both the natural human joy of connecting to music and making your movement feel different. Um, there's the social element. So we know that when people move together, they tend to like each other more, trust one another more. So whether you're dancing with strangers or you're dancing with a loved one or you know, you're dancing with family members, that it increases that bond. And there's such a great benefit to that. I mean, what a wonderful thing to feel connected to strangers. That in itself is a, is a type of psychological medicine to feel less alone in the presence of people you don't know intimately. But then also if you're, if you're dancing or moving with people you do care about, how wonderful that is to strengthen the relationship in that way. And then there's the movement itself, right? Every movement form brings something different out of us. You know, you mentioned enjoying weightlifting. And we know that when you lift weights, your brain will get feedback from your muscles that say, like, I am powerful. I am strong. I can do hard things. I can't tell you how many people I talked to who said they loved powerlifting because it's a literal physical sensation of, I can do hard things. Mm. And that that's so psychologically empowering. So, um, and so, you know, ballroom dance is going to make you feel like a certain version of yourself, whether it's graceful or passionate or liberated. I don't know. what. Do you know? Like, how would you describe how you feel when you're dancing? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's just completely meditative. I could sit on headspace for two hours and I wouldn't get that same sort of focus as I do in one hour of uh, dance. But the other thing is, I think it's just that real sort of um, that real sort of connection feel like that. Yeah. I just leave then I just feel so connected, you know, I mean, especially when you're your body language is mirroring the other person more or less, right? Yes. Yes. And well, so, you know, it's funny. I remember, so in sort of my other life when I'm not, um, 
trying to convince people to move their bodies. <laughs> I often am trying to convince them to try to move their minds through meditation. And when I first started studying research on the benefits of, of meditation, um, I came across a couple of studies that were comparing it to um, tango dancing and, and other similar forms of movement. And they found that that tango dancing had similar benefits as mindfulness training. And part of it was how deeply connected you need to be to your partner, that there's a, a way of being with, of listening, of responding, of, of, of leading, but also accepting. And, uh, you know, it sounds like in part, that's what you're describing there. It can make us feel deeply connected, but it also is a form of meditation. Could we talk about what happens when, what happens to our body when we don't exercise or minimize it? Yeah, well, so so one of the things that I tend to stay away from is, you know, scaring people about the health outcomes of not being active. Okay. Um, but one of the, so of what you just described, you know, something I would love to talk about. And by the way, the reason I say that is because it, what I found is it doesn't motivate people. I mean, mm. of course, it's true. If you if you don't exercise, you're at greater risk for everything you don't want. Yeah. Um, this is true. This is pretty clear. And talking about it, what it really seems to do is it, it, it distracts people from something like the direct experience that you can have when you are active. It's going to be more motivating to, to be active when you find something you love or that makes you a better version of yourself or helps you face your fears than to you know look for the exercise that's going to burn the most calories or your doctor said there was a study somewhere that it would prevent a heart attack you know 10 years in the future <laughs> so the the thing that what, what you said that really resonates with me because i have been sheltering in place for a month now here in california and i previously i'd been teaching um between six and eight dance classes a week and they i so now i haven't taught in a month and I too am going through what I think you were describing as essentially withdrawal. And one of the things that we know about sort of proof of concept, why exercise is so good for mental health, is that when people are regularly active and they suddenly become less active because of injury or because of you know a change in their life circumstances or because you conduct an experiment and you force them to stop exercising, um, almost immediately they start becoming more irritable, they have worse moods, they become sort of like not the better version of themselves. And if they previously had symptoms of anxiety or depression, they tend to rebound because exercise is such a powerful way to protect your mood and bring out your psychological strengths. And the sort of the correlate of this is we know that it takes about six weeks or so of being regularly active to get a brain hooked on exercise that you know, if you are regularly active for about six weeks, you're going to experience more pleasure and joy from movement itself while you're doing it. You're going to get sort of bigger, longer lasting changes in things like symptoms of depression and anxiety, um, you know, frequency of positive emotions, um, better relationships with others, meaning in life, sort of whatever metric you're using. And after six weeks, your brain will show changes that reflect that you now have a brain that is not only uh, slightly addicted to exercise, but also more resilient to stress um, and more sensitive to happiness and joy. That actually regular regular exercise creates real, you know, functional and structural changes in your brain that make it easier to be this version of yourself even when you're not exercising. So one of the things that I thought about, and this links perfectly in with yours, is that when I'm doing these workouts live, is I know how many other people are doing them at the same time. So it has that real community feel to them. 
Yes, absolutely. And what's great about this, so, you know, I think about this as being almost an experiment in teaching people how to feel connected to others when we aren't sharing the same space. So like, if you were to ask me, what's better, you know, I would say, well, evolutionarily speaking, we're, we're probably more likely to get that collective joy to build relationships when we're having a shared endorphin rush, like in the physical presence of other people. One of the things that I mentioned in the chapter on collective joy is that happy sweat smells different than mm. other sweat. And when you smell other people's sweat, that they sweated while they were in a good mood, it actually increases your own happiness and puts you in a better mood. So I, I mentioned that because I think there are all sorts of ways that, that human beings are that prime us to really receive benefits from from being in the company of other people. So that's part of it. And it's it has been hard for humans to get the same benefits of social connection when it's mediated by technology. Like a text doesn't doesn't have quite the same effect as a hug, although it can have many wonderful benefits if it's a supportive text. Uh, you know, like Skype isn't exactly the same as being in the room with someone. You can't smell their happy sweat, for example. But I think we're all learning now because because we don't have access to as much face-to-face -face contact is we're all learning ways to, to put a frame of meaning around these mediated social connections that, that just because we are choosing to view them as an opportunity to connect, it's giving us more access to that sense of common humanity and interdependence and we're all in this together and uh, I'm supported by like the countless other people. I might not see them right now, but I know they're doing this too. And they probably think that holding this plank for another 30 seconds is as hard as I do. And we're, you know, <laughs> we're doing it together. And I feel like, like that actually could be one of the benefits that emerges. You know, at, hopefully we get to the other side and we get to be with one another again, but that it might actually change the way we experience connection through technology in a way that is is actually richer and more meaningful. One of the things in which I would love to ask you is, in the book, you did studies on, uh, I believe it was, you did crazy studies on people like paleontologists. Um, <laughs> but one of the things which really caught my attention was the case studies with the ultra marathon runners. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> so I would love to know, um, you know, just what did you learn from, you know, these people that <laughs> just run these absurd distances? Right. So I will say this was the chapter that was hardest for me to write because um, from the outside, I would say that these events don't make sense. I mean, there's a lot of things that that's true for, but I think really, unless you're doing it, you don't understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. And because I am not sort of physically trained to do it, I had to spend about two years trying to observe and talk to people and, and figure out what it is that people are, are doing and getting from this experience that when I came to it, it just to me was like horrifying. The idea of, of pushing your physical limits until you are just ill and injured and it looked like you're doing it on your own in dangerous places. I was like, I already suffer enough. I don't want to practice for fun. Um, <laughs> that was sort of, that was my instinct. And so it took me a long time to understand and, and finally realize like, what the, the beauty of these events is. And so I will say what I learned is that 
it looks on the outside like people are, you know, running 300 miles across a desert to prove how tough they are or, you know, doing these these incredibly long bike rides or whatever just to prove I can do this, I'm tough, I'm strong, I'm going to challenge myself to see what the limits of my capabilities are and then go beyond and transcend them. And that's part of it. But the more I watched and the more I talked to people, the overwhelming experience that was that was leading people to want to repeat these experiences and, and train for them and take meaning in them was this demonstration of interdependence, that you are doing things that are so hard you can't do them alone, and that you need to accept the help of other people, you need to be vulnerable while using your strengths. It's very, very unusual. We don't like we don't often get a chance to be to be living from our strength and our courage and at the same time incredibly vulnerable. At least there aren't a lot of recreational things you can do that that push you to that paradox. Mm. And um, people told these amazing stories of being helped by others and having the chance to help others. And it really is this kind of, you know, it's a it's survival through cooperation and self-transcendence while still being able to experience yourself as an amazing individual who did something unthinkable, but that you did it with others, not only by yourself. And when I started to see like that was that those were the peak experiences people were describing when I actually watched the events and I saw when you hear about it, you just think someone's out there alone running. But when you watch it, there are all these pacers and there are all these volunteers and there's just people are constantly being supported in this epic heroic journey. That's when I, I understood better what um, what these events were about and and how they're like a rehearsal for being vulnerable and strong at the same time and celebrating our interdependence. I love that so much. I got goosebumps as you were talking about it. And one of the reasons was, is I remember last April, my co-host Lewis and me, we did a guided group walk to um, the Mount Everest base camp. And it took, uh, it was, I think it took like 13 days or something. And this was one of the most physically demanding walks that I've ever done in my life. There was all kinds that went wrong on the trip. And, <laughs> you know, all kinds that went wrong. Do we get any highlights? I haven't heard the story. So. Uh, well, I mean, I could start with um, that on day one in Kathmandu, that our helicopter, uh, sorry, that our airplane broke down and we had to get an emergency helicopter through the Himalayas which cost uh, it was like pretty much my entire budget for the trip. <laughs> uh, then we had, um, then I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this airport, but it's in Luckler Airport, which is the most dangerous airport in the world. <laughs> most deaths there um, of any airport ever. And just as we're boarding this flight, someone then tells me that there is. <laughs> and I look at the pilot and he starts praying before we take off. <laughs> Uh, so there was just all kinds that went wrong in that trip. Um, so we were in a group of 13 people. So my friend Lewis and I, um, we just got there and there's 11 other people there that we've, you know, never met within, I would say two days into that trip, uh, you know, just exactly what you described. And I saw people staying behind, helping people at the back of the group, people carrying, um, literally maybe 10, 20 ki kilograms of other people's luggage that 
they were struggling with, motivating them, um, you know, giving them encouraging words, staying behind, offering them limited supplies that needed to last them. And I think that they really tied into one of the things in which you talked about in the book in regards to, um, I think it was connection where you say something like, uh, regular exercise lowers your threshold for feeling connected to others. So I think that combined with just that, just that general sense of, um, you know, we're all in this together and look at what we can achieve as part of a group. Like, that is why I had goosebumps when you were talking because I was like, yes, it's like I, I saw this with my own eyes. <laughs> I, I, I love that example. And let me just go back to that idea. Like, so I don't think people realize that based on your life experiences, based on, you know, your current circumstances, based on your physical health and your brain health, that, that actually we have these like set points for feeling connected in positive ways to others, to strangers and, and friends and family. And a lot of the things that we consider, you know, psychological suffering, one of their central features is they seem to increase the threshold for feeling connected to others. They actually dampen the natural human capacity to be open to others and to experience social joy, to have, you know, even just the reward system be activated by social interaction. And I, you know, I remember when this research was first starting to come out, they were suggesting that this was sort of the the defining neurobiology of loneliness is that people weren't actually alone, but that their brains had this like overwhelming barrier it had to overcome to experience reward through social interaction. And so I really do not want to like underestimate how amazing it is if, if there is something that can lower your threshold for social joy and connection. And we've already talked about a few ways that might be happening in the brain by changing brain chemicals and changing the the structure and function of your reward system. Um, But of course, there are psychological elements too. I mean, human beings are meant to take joy in through cooperation. And so when you're in circumstances like your trip, where you have so many opportunities to cooperate for a common goal, um, that in itself will, will start to bring out our capacity for social joy and and being pro-social. So I feel like, like, again, people often will talk about exercise as being good for depression because that's where the most research is. You know, there's so much research that if you are clinically depressed, adding exercise to your current treatment makes it more effective. It often is effective as a standalone treatment. Um, But I I think there's less uh, awareness of how exercise, if you were gonna say like, what's the dominant effect it has on your brain, I would actually go to the place of what you said, lowering your threshold for feeling connected to others. In the book, um, there was just a plethora of uh, scientific studies and you give this um, amazing sort of narrative shift. There is that defining uh, moving towards that we talked about, those sort of pro-motivation. I'd love to know what were the... Uh, the you know the sort of latest the newest studies which you uncovered in this book I am so excited to bring an area of research to the world that very few people know about and it's actually I'm super excited because I thought certainly people will have been on to this by the time this book comes <laughs> out but people still really don't know about this and wow. this is uh, an area of research um, called basically myokines so myo means muscle 
kine means set into motion by. So myokines are chemicals, they're, they're proteins, they're molecules that are set into motion by your muscles when you exercise. And it's basically, it's, this is research has only been done for the past decade or so. We now know that your muscles are essentially endocrine organs. So in the same way that your pituitary gland and your adrenal glands can, can manufacture and release um, hormones that affect every system of your body, including your brain. We now know that muscles do that too. And again, like I said, this is a really big revolutionary insight. You know, 50 years ago, people did not know that your muscles were manufacturing chemicals that influence every system of your body, including your heart health, your immune function, your, your metabolism, and your brain. So that's the big idea, that your, your muscles manufacture and release chemicals that influence every aspect of your well-being. And the molecules that are really, really good for your physical health, that can kill cancer cells, that can regulate your blood sugar, that can improve your heart health, and that make your brain more resilient to stress, and that function um, to improve your cognition, your memory, your mood, um, they are the chemicals that are released when you exercise. So your your muscles will secrete certain levels of chemicals when you're just lying around, but it's, it's sort of like... You could think like drip, drip, drip of stuff you don't want. And then when you exercise, it completely changes what your muscles are releasing into your bloodstream. It's like turning on the faucet of amazing healing chemicals that you want. Kind so every like time sleep. you exercise, yes, sorry, like, sorry. Sleep. Yeah. Yes, like sleep. Yes, like sleep. Except, right, like that it's your muscle, which <laughs> yeah. I think is so, to imagine, they're so far away from our brain, right? And I don't know, I just, the idea that your muscles are such good friends to you that as soon as you lift something heavy or go for a walk or dance or stretch, anything that, that uses your muscles, your muscles are gonna say, it's like that feel better effect. Oh, mm. we're alive. We better take care of ourselves. <laughs> so let me give you chemicals that will kill cancer cells or let me give you the, what, what researchers have dubbed hope molecules, which are myokines that work as antidepressants essentially when they cross the blood brain barrier and reach your brain. And so I've been, I've been trying to get this idea out into the public that when you exercise, you are giving yourself an intravenous dose of hope um, and that your, your muscles are basically a pharmacy and how empowering that is that, that there's so many things we can do to take care of ourselves. And one of them is just use your muscles hope molecules that is wow that is amazing what is something like let's imagine that just on this podcast that you could broadcast a message to everybody listening in regards to exercise what would one thing be that you wished everybody knew about exercise the joy of movement is available to anyone with a body that still has the capacity to move in any way. And I, I mean that so deeply and so sincerely. And um, one of the things I didn't realize, because that's been true in my own experience, you know, I've, I've always worked with people with, with chronic pain, with health conditions, with severe mental health challenges. So I've always known that. But I realized when I first started going out in public with this book talking about movement, people would... In, instantly be like, oh, you mean for young, skinny, fit, rich people with no problems or something like that. 
and which just took me because you you've listened to the book now, so you know yeah. how different that is course, from yeah. like the the examples and the communities that I tend to focus on. Um, and so I, I want anyone who's listening to think she's not talking about me. Like I can't run because I'm in a wheelchair. She's not talking about me because I have chronic pain. And when I move my body, it's complicated. Yeah, maybe I'll get an endorphin rush, but maybe also it hurts when I'm doing it. So wh- like, what am I supposed to do? And what I want to say is that like, even if for you, the hardest thing in the world to do is get out of bed, you know, if something like depression or grief makes movement seem like the most difficult thing in the world. Um, even if you have physical health challenges or disabilities or neurological disorders that make movement difficult, that that actually even more so than people for whom movement is easy or life is easy, movement is more important and more likely to actually you know have these transformative effects. So so that would be my main message is that that whatever body you're in, there's a way to move that will do these things, increase hope. Um, help you become more resilient to stress, give you a sense of your own strength, connect with others. And sometimes it's just, you know, the challenge is being creative and looking for communities around you who know how to do this. Um, and one of the studies, I, I regret that I didn't put it in the book and I don't, I don't know why I didn't quite make it work, but some of the studies that really blew me away, um, there's been a lot of research looking at exercise in hospice care. And at the face of it, you would think, hospice care people are dying they've essentially given up on fixing whatever is wrong with their bodies why would people be exercising in hospice care and when you interview people in hospice care who are choosing to exercise in whatever way they're still able to at the end of life they say it's because when i move that's when i know i'm alive when i move that's when i feel hope that's when i feel connected to other people and so even at the end of life, when you have abandoned all hope of like fixing your body, people are choosing to be in their bodies. And um, I think that, that that really just sums up my approach. Have you ever thought about exercise in terms of um, a tool for healing? Because yes. it seems like this common thing which people know without maybe knowing the actual scientific background into it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so for all of the reasons we've already mentioned, plus a bunch of other reasons, movement can be so helpful during life transitions or trying to move forward from from tragedy or loss or a crisis. Um, and, and part of it is embedded in even just like the language I used moving forward. Um, there's interesting research looking at like just embodied cognition. So how the way that you what you feel in your body changes the way that you think or has particular meaning. And moving forward is one of the easiest ways to make people feel like they're moving forward Mm. in life, that they are making progress, that they are on a journey, that they are headed somewhere. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons why people will pick up something like walking or running after a breakup or a loss. Um, In the book, I tell the story of Susan Hurd, who lost her young son to cancer. And it was first walking and then running that um, she credits with allowing her, her, the language that she uses is to embrace life again after basically wanting to be dead from the pain of the loss. And I think that there is, there's both, you know, for the biochemical reasons we've talked about, the social component is often a big thing for people, but there also is meaning embedded in movement. And also movement is one of the 
most basic ways to experience yourself as someone who can learn and grow, um, especially if you take up something new, right? So if there's any movement you do, you will get faster or stronger or better. You'll experience the the skill thrill of being able to do something that was impossible mm-hmm. a month ago or even a week ago. And so almost any movement form, you know, whether you're learning how to do a headstand or you're learning how to throw a punch or, or you're growing something in the garden, which is a, a great form of exercise, um, you, you see that transformation occur over time in your body and what you can do. And that supports a growth mindset for being able to move on from, from difficult life circumstances. I love it. I love it. I've got one last reader question for you. We pitched okay. this to our Instagram. Uh, this is from a PhD student that says that uh, they are currently studying uh, their PhD into integrative neuroscience. And they would love to know uh, what studies have you found or what science do you have that shows uh, the latest research into why uh, exercise helps cognition? Oh, yeah, it's the myokine stuff, I think. is Well, so that's what I think of as being the most exciting. So, so for example, um, one of the myokines that is released from muscles during exercise is irisin. And irisin is really important for supporting um, neuroplasticity and brain health. So irisin increases um, brain-derived neurotropic factor in your brain. It makes your brain uh, sort of healthier in general. Um, and also enhances uh, learning learning plasticity that is positive. So, so there's this idea called exercise priming, where if you're about to learn something, something new, like you're going into cognitive therapy and you're trying to learn a new way to think, or you're doing skills training, the idea is that if you exercise beforehand, in part because of the way that exercise immediately increases uh, brain plasticity, that um, you'll actually learn more effectively or learn more quickly. Um, so, for example, some people are using exercise before um, uh, the anxiety therapy where you expose yourself to what you're afraid of. It's pretty fascinating. Anyway, so I think that that that's probably what I would say is where the latest research is. Um, it's funny to watch research go through waves. So if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, people would have been really excited about um, studies that were just starting to show changes in the structure of people's brains who exercise versus not. So you can find all this great research showing that if you're regularly active, it basically, you know, maybe it beefs up the hippocampus or it leads to greater structural integrity in the connections between areas of the brain that are important for memory and thinking. And so the myokine research, I feel like what that's doing is it's starting to tell us a little bit more about how, like how does the hippocampus sort of miraculously become um, you know, more protected or better connected. And in part, it seems to be because your muscles are releasing these chemicals into your bloodstream that change that change your brain in positive ways. Absolutely. And one of the things I always do is when I'm doing podcasts is, uh, or even if when I was back in university, if I was learning, I was always twirling a thumb, uh, a pen between my fingers or I was, I'd move I'm doing my that toes. right now. <laughs> I, as soon as you said that, I realized I've been doing that this whole interview. Yeah. I, I, you know, it just, just keeps me, you know, on my toes sort of thing. Uh, so we always ask if, uh, is there a challenge based on the, this amazing, amazing book, which you've produced that, you could issue to us and to our audience. Oh, like, like a homework assignment? A homework <laughs> assignment that we can start today. Uh, so, well, the one that I have found people are responding well to is um, 
to start to put together a playlist for movement. We didn't talk that much about music, but particularly for people who think they don't like to move or who have challenges getting started movement because of, uh, you know, mental challenges, mood, physical issues, music is the great invitation to move. So I would encourage people to put together a playlist of songs, um, either that make you want to move. So, you know, dance songs or theme songs from movies or songs from, you know, sporting events, World Cup has all these amazing songs, um, or music that makes you feel the way you want to feel when you move, like fierce or aggressive or strong or hopeful. Um, and to make that playlist, and then especially, you know, if people are listening to this and they're still stuck at home, um, this is a way to fit movement into everyday life. If you're not able to go to the gym or take a class, just put on a song that invites you to move and that that is um, that is aligned with the way that you want to feel in this in that moment and just doing it for three minutes you'll get the feel better effect i love it i love it um so you are massively impressed of yourself these list of achievements they are incredible so i wonder are there any books that have impacted your life oh there are a lot i don't know how universal they are please I'll, tell I'll, us you know, we've got so but, many right yeah, so I'll probably give you ones that you haven't heard before okay. and then take it or leave it. I love it. Um, one is a book called Long Quiet Highway, which I first read when I was a graduate student and have read many times since. And this is a book by Natalie Goldberg. It's a memoir. She is a writing teacher as well as a Zen teacher and a, a Zen practitioner. And that book changed my life because one is, you know, Natalie Goldberg as a writer and as a teacher, is someone I look up to, she has this ability to just put things directly and that point to the reality of human experience in a way that I find incredibly empowering. Like I, the cut through the nonsense stuff, but in a way that's, that's just like loving and human. And so that book was one of the first books that showed me what that could look like. And it also is a book that celebrates the impact that a teacher can have on your life, whether it's like a, a grade school teacher or a meditation teacher. Um, and so that helped instill in me really what was, was becoming clear that that was the role that I wanted to play in life too, to be a teacher. Um, another book that really influenced my teaching is a series of books called Post Secret. Have you ever seen them? No. Or do you know the concept? No, I'm not so, sure. So there's, there's a great Instagram account. If you are Twitter, I think they're on all the social media channels. It's called Post Secret. Post like sending something through the mail, yeah. post it. Um, and it's a project that was started, I don't know when, a couple decades ago, where this guy would give out postcards and say, write a secret on this postcard you've never told anyone and mail it back to me anonymously. And people wrote the most amazing secrets and they started decorating them and like turning them into art. So there are books called Post Secret that are collections of these postcards. And um, the reason that that changed really supported me in thinking about how I teach is it really, it illustrated to me the value of making transparent things that people usually keep on the inside and the importance of, of helping people realize that they aren't alone in whatever they think is sort of uniquely difficult for them or uniquely broken in them. And that's been, you know, from the very beginning when I started writing books and teaching classes, I wanted one of the outcomes to be that whatever people had on the inside that they thought 
that was like uniquely screwed up about them or uniquely painful, that they would leave that class or come away from that book feeling less alone and more connected to the the bigger human experience. And so that book was, you know, I came across that so long ago, really helped me start thinking about that as being a core value. I'm going to read that because that reminds me of uh, Brene's work into shame and guilt in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, that shame needs silence to thrive, right? Yes, yeah. that's, that's amazing. I love that. Uh, we'll add that to my Goodreads list. <laughs> um, so where can our audience connect with you? And do you have any closing messages? Uh, I, they can connect with me through my name, Kelly McGonigal, kellymcgonigal.com. I'm most active on Instagram right now as Kelly Marie McGonigal. And I'm on Spotify also as Kelly Marie McGonigal. Um, I have some great playlists to move to, uh, public playlists on that. And uh, well, I just I hope people heard something that inspires them to move. I've got nothing else in particular. <laughs> I like I hope there was at least if people listen this whole hour, I certainly hope they heard something that either inspires them to move or that makes them feel less alone. So Kelly, this has been amazing. I was I absolutely loved your uh, book. Do you have any idea what the next one will be on yet? I, I actually do. I've been thinking today. This is okay. a book I've been threatening to write for years. <laughs> yeah, why not? I'll tell you. I'll put it out there in the universe. Um, I, I don't always get to choose the topics. Sometimes my publisher has a, like a hand in it. I've been threatening for years to write a book about appreciative joy, which is the ability to take joy in seeing the good in others, the good in the world, um, in uh, appreciating other people's strengths. Of, of being happy, not only because you got what you wanted, but because of the wonderful things that are in the world. And this is, you know, it's considered like compassion and equanimity and, and loving kindness to be sort of a core essential human capacity for well-being. But for whatever reason, people don't talk about how to cultivate it the way that people talk about cultivating mindfulness or compassion. And I really feel that that this ability to take joy, um, to celebrate I, I was trying to hint at it in this book. I don't know if you caught that. I was trying to like do like so a, many a collaboration. Little, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, as my sister said, sometimes I need to make my message less sneaky. I'm always like <laughs> hiding in some of the psychological stuff, you know, like a book about exercise. Like, sometimes you just write the straight up book about it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. I'm personally inspired. If it wasn't 10 o'clock, yeah, I would go out and exercise right now. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Well, that wraps up episode 208 with Kelly McGonigal. This was such a fun chat. I loved Kelly's enthusiasm, passion, and knowledge about her craft. It certainly has opened my eyes to the joy the movement can have. Before I sign off for this week, if you enjoy the work that we put out and you would like to help support the show so that we can keep delivering great content, please consider leaving us an iTunes review as this really, really does help. Also, if you guys would prefer to see the two handsome Welshmen, Joe and Lewis, on your screens, then please head over to our YouTube channel. There'll be a link below where you can watch video episodes of these podcasts. Whilst you're there, please subscribe, as this would make us really happy. Until next time, my friends.